Well, this week has been a big week in the world of chess. I don't know if you know, but um, normally chess doesn't really get a mention in our news cycle. But this week there was a story of great controversy. Two weeks ago, the world's best chess player, whose name is Magnus Carlsen, there's his picture there, pulled out of a tournament after losing to a lowly ranked 19-year-old player named Hans Nilman. Upsets in tournaments may be rare, but we know it's not unprecedented, right? All top players can have a bad day. But the controversy involved in this story is that Carlson accused Neiman of cheating. Such an accusation seems quite extreme. For, like, how do you go about cheating in chess? Well, Carlson suggests that Neiman had access to a supercomputer that was being communicated to him by someone in the audience through secret signals. Well, since this incident, Carlson and Neiman, they've played again online with Carlson leaving the match after just one move. Now, to be honest, I don't know where the truth lies in this story. But out of both these players, who do you think has the most to lose? Clearly, I think it is Carlson. As a reigning champion, he doesn't want this game to besmirch his perfect record. So it's completely reasonable that Carlson will go about making such a fabrication. For it can be hard for anyone to swallow their pride and admit that they are in the wrong. Today we're looking at a portrait of a man who in many ways could have been just like Carlson, but through God's intervention, he was able to step away from who he once was to be what, whom God intended him to be. Today we're going to be taking a bit of an adventure in Acts 9 as we'll learn some lessons through Paul's story. My hope is that you'll be simultaneously encouraged but also challenge as you leave today to live out the Christian life. So before we proceed, I'd love for you to pray with me. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we read about this story of Saul the Pharisee that became Paul the Apostle, help our hearts to be encouraged, help our hearts to be challenged as we consider what this may mean for us now. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, at the start of chapter 9, we face a problem. We read in verses 1 and 2 that this man named Saul, well, he's venturing out of Jerusalem to find believers who belong to the way in the hope of imprisoning them. Saul has already made a brief appearance in chapter 7 and 8 with the martyrdom of Stephen. And after being stoned to death, we read that Saul approved of what took place. And it was this event that was the catalyst for Saul, as he would go from house to house arresting Christians. And Saul, well, he was very good at what he did, so much so that the followers of the way, they needed to flee to Judah and Samaria to be saved. And at the start of chapter 9, we see Saul executing phase 2 of his plan, going to Damascus. But this is all part of really God's plan and his intent for his gospel. For he always intended that the gospel would resound out of Jerusalem and make make its way into Judah and into Samaria 
and to the very ends of the earth, like Australia. So as we look at Saul's actions, I think it's pretty hard to imagine how anyone could become so extreme, right? Who would go about arresting Christians? So this led me to think about um, our first key question, which is this. What has led Saul to be like this? And I want to say from the outset that any one of us really could have gone down the same track. For Saul was just placed in a system in which he was made a product of his culture. And I think there's a couple of factors in play, at play that led to him to be who he was. First, Saul was born into Jewish pedigree. Um, there's this chapter in one of his letters in Philippians 3, and Saul is boasting about his former achievements. Um, and one of the things he says is that he was born into the tribe of Benjamin. And the tribe of Benjamin is just, well, it's a special tribe. It's the royal tribe. It's where King Saul came from, and which is most likely the inspiration behind his own name that his parents named him. So already his parents are placing you know, fairly big expectations on their son. But more than that, he goes on to say in that chapter that he was circumcised on the eighth day, an indication that his family were very devout to the Mosaic law that required that all young boys be dedicated to God in this way. See, it's that type of background, which you know he was born into, he had no say in, which was actually a great source of pride for him when he grew up. Secondly, he was privileged in receiving the best Jewish education. Even though he was in, raised in Tarsus, which is like a backwater in Israel, he was educated in Jerusalem under the tutelage of a great rabbi, a man named Gamaliel. And under this system, he was shaped as a Pharisee, as someone who was devoted to his role. He'd be committed to upholding the Mosaic law and making sure that he followed it and everyone around him followed it as well. In this sense, he was really what he would term in that chapter in Philippians 3. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, which is to say, out of everyone that is Hebrew, I'm the best at being Hebrew. There's no one that can do being do being. There's no one that can be Hebrew more than what I am. And it was these two factors, essentially, <clears throat> that his uh, Jewish pedigree and his Jewish education helped form deep convictions that really that God's favour needed to be earned rather than it being given. So, for a small sect of believers to believe in the grace of God wasn't just an offence to Saul, but it was also an offence to the God of his people. But it also would have meant that Saul would need to have reconsidered his belief. For there is an alternate belief out there. So what is often the case, instead of Saul conversing with these people, Paul decided to eradicate them, for the stakes are way too high for him to want to be open to change. Excuse me. See, when you're at the top of your class, then you don't actually want the goalposts to move, right? 
And for Saul, it's easier for him to take the long journey and travel all the way to Damascus to arrest Christians rather than being open to alternative belief. For him to be open to an alternative belief meant that he needed to reconfigure what he may believe. And that was something that Paul didn't, Saul didn't really want to do. So when we review Saul's previous life, we can see that he was really just placed in a system that made him who he was. And at this point, Paul could have done the easy thing of not taking any responsibility. He could have said, well, you know what? It wasn't my idea to persecute Christians. It was the idea of those who went before me. But see, Paul never makes such an excuse for his past. He admits that he was the worst of all sinners. And I think there's a lesson in this for us as well. We need to be aware of the part we play within any system. We need to be aware of how our actions, no matter how much they've been influenced by others, can cause harm. We need to confess to God how much we have grieved him by acknowledging the part we've played. As um, Saul was travelling on the road, getting closer to Damascus, our story takes a drastic turn where two things occur for Saul. Firstly, a light shone from heaven. And secondly, coming from that light, a voice spoke to him. With such a dramatic event taking place, Saul fell to the ground in what can only be assumed was a moment of great shock. One of, um, one of my great interests is viewing art. And um, one of my favourite artists is a man named Caravaggio. Does anyone know or heard of the artist named Caravaggio? No one. Wow. Fantastic. Other than Kim Jong, you don't count. But... Um, Caravaggio was an artist um, in the late or well, early 17th century um, and he was commissioned to paint this event. And um, this is the picture there on the left. It's a beautiful painting that really encapsulates the full drama of the scene that's taking place in Acts chapter 9. Caravaggio adds a little bit of his own artistic license in this painting. He has Saul falling from his horse, but there's no horse mentioned in the text. But what I love about this picture is um, that figure on the ground, Saul, in his great shock, he has his hands raised to the sky, almost in a moment of surrender, uh, showing the great shock he would have felt when that light beaming down upon him. I think Caravaggio captures that moment of great shock really well, as if the young Saul was sprung with a crime. But actually what makes this scene so shocking is actually what Jesus said to Paul. He says this in verse 4. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Which leads us to think through our next key question. Now, Jesus, he could have said anything, but he chose to say those words. So why were those words so life-changing? At first hearing, I think Saul would have found them actually quite puzzling. Remember, he lived his life so that he could always be in the right and never in the wrong. He would have actually thought that by arresting Christians, he was giving a service to God. 
But with the recognition of that voice of Jesus coming from heaven, there were two things that I think he needed to reconsider. And the first is this, that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And I don't think that information of Jesus being alive, rising from the dead, was actually new for Paul. I'm sure he would have heard it before. The Christians that he was persecuting would have proclaimed it. But I'm sure that Paul would have just assumed that this Jesus was just an imposter, that what he was doing was spreading blasphemy. But now he has experienced the risen Lord Jesus in a very powerful and profound way. What was he going to do with that new information? Second thing is this. Jesus identifies with those he's persecuting, that the service he thought he was providing was actually counterproductive to the purposes of God. That now he'd been on the wrong side of the argument. This would have led Saul to be in a rock and a hard place. For how was he going to square away what he'd been taught and believe with what had now been revealed to him? Sometimes in popular culture, um, some may say, I had a Damascus Road experience. Some, a lot of people at 8 o'clock had heard that expression. Has anyone else heard that expression at 10? All right, great, good. Um, which just means that someone's had a, a moment of great epiphany that has brought about a change in their life. But I want to say to this to you this morning. I don't think Saul had a Damascus Road experience, even though... He had a Damascus Road experience. After this event, Saul was led by the hand into Damascus and for three days he was blind in a world without visual distractions while not eating or drinking. And in those three days, I think his mind was actually doing this. You can see that's a picture there. It's often what like detectives will do, get the string out and try to work out all the clues. I think he was deeply trying to rationalise what had just happened to him with what it now means in terms of his faith. And as someone who would have known a lot of the Old Testament scriptures, this internal conversation would have been actually greatly perplexing to him. Had everything he believed to be just a lie? Well, we don't need to look too far in our world to see how difficult it can be to actually give up on things that you've believed in. You know, you go on any social media platform when a debate arises and see if anyone is willing to recant their words. Generally, it doesn't really happen, does it? As people, we tend to just stay entrenched in our own point of view, not willing to change. But what took place for Saul when he arrived in Damascus was that God spoke to Saul, as well as a prominent disciple named Ananias, and in two separate visions, arranged for them both to meet. For Paul, he needed desperately someone to help him. And you can see it there in verse 12, as he was a man praying in this moment of turmoil, trying to work out how all these pieces of the puzzle come together. Whereas for Ananias, this vision was actually a test for him to trust God, despite his fears that Saul was a man who intended to arrest him. And in verse 17 and 19, these two characters meet in this divine appointment where Saul receives the Holy Spirit and gains his sight once again. In 1 Timothy 1, 13 to 14, Paul reflects upon this moment and he says this, 
that even though he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent, he received mercy because he had acted ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ overflowed for him. See, what Paul needed to do was concede that he had understood God incorrectly. It would have been a moment of great surrender where Paul can finally give up on himself and reorientate his life to a truth which he had failed to see. And you know, for us in Christ, this is our story too, where we needed to acknowledge that we'd been living under our own understanding rather than the God who had made us. See, it's this moment as God's people that we actually need to constantly arrive at again and again and again. For every day we live under our own steam, making decisions that don't have God in mind, thinking things that don't honour God, trying to make a name for ourselves. Whereas the location that we need to come to constantly is that moment of surrender. And when we arrive there, there's great liberation for we no longer need to live up to the, our own expectations and false hopes for the future, believing that we have life all sown together. But we can be free to live for God where his grace well, is always open, ready to accept us. For when Saul received the Holy Spirit, it wasn't just the start of him becoming a Christian but it also encompassed him being an apostle. See, to be an apostle is to be a sent one, sent to a mission or a task. And as readers, we are told about source commissioning where God spoke to Ananias in that vision. And these words you can see in verses 15 and 16. He says this, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of my mind to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. In this verse, we see God's heart for the nations as the gospel is slowly spreading out of Israel to the Gentiles and their leaders. This, this shift of emphasis is a huge moment in the history of Christianity as God was primarily seen for only one nation. But now through this man, eventually the other apostles and through the other apostles, God's favour can now rest on any person, no matter what their ethnicity, which is how we had all been included into this faith. But this role for Saul won't be easy, as there is actually a certain irony in that verse, in verse 16. For Saul will suffer in this new calling, just as much as he's caught suffering to other people before his conversion, he would also suffer in what he was doing, which is also not unlike Christ himself when he came to, world, came to our world to suffer. And as someone who understood this role, he went about this new job quite quickly. You can see it there in verses 22, 20 and 22 where he first goes about explaining the gospel to Jews in a synagogue within Damascus. And his message is a very simple one. Jesus is the Son of God. This is Paul's new message that the Jews needed to hear. See, throughout the whole Old Testament, there was this promise that God would send his Son to restore the world, a chosen one, if you will. 
You can see that in Psalm 2 verse 6 where God says that I've installed my king on my holy mountain and he will make the nations his inheritance, the ends of the earth his possessions. Well, who is this king in Psalm 2? Well, it's God's son. See, the same son who heard his father speak to him when he was being baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, when a voice from heaven said these words, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, why is that so significant that Paul realized that Jesus is God's son? Well, remember, I want to show you this picture again. Remember this picture when Paul, in his blindness, was trying to work out what had been revealed to him? Well, this is his new conclusion, his new conclusion about God, that God sent his son, Jesus, to our world. And what's interesting is the way that he goes about describing Jesus as God's son, as this is the only mention in the whole book of Acts of Jesus being referred to as God's son. So the other apostles, they would tend to describe Jesus as you know, Lord or Messiah. But within Paul's letters, this way of communicating the gospel is actually littered throughout all his writings. And it's that significant because that piece of information, it, well, it wasn't just some fun fact that he found on a minty wrapper, but that information changed his world as it emboldened him to be the apostle which God had always intended him to be. In many ways, Paul's example of living the Christian life is quite intimidating, right? He's just gotten converted, and a couple of days later, what he decides to do is, I'm going to tell people about Jesus. When I first became a Christian, I have to admit that I didn't preach the gospel to my friends a few days later like Paul did. That's a very intimidating example. I didn't have the confidence. And now, some many years later, since my teenage years, I still find it to be the most unnatural thing for me to do, to talk about Jesus in that way. And dare I say, I'm probably not the only one in the room that feels this. But despite this, God commands us to do this work of speaking the gospel to others. So what do we need to realise to help us on this journey? Well, when we review what we have seen in chapter 9 with Paul's conversion and Paul's calling, we need to understand that none of it was Paul's effort. See, if it was up to Paul to work out this whole thing about Christianity, what actually would have happened is that he would have continued on his journey to Damascus and a whole lot of Christians would have been arrested. See, he would have just stayed in his stubbornness and he would have continued his ways. Just like, say, like Magnus Carlsen would have been. But what we see is that God intervenes and he made this enemy the great evangelist to the Gentiles. And here's the thing. What's true for Paul is actually true for all of us as well. See, we didn't come to God on our own terms, but he intervened into our lives. And so when you do pluck up the courage to say that, you know, hey, do you know that Jesus is God's son to either you know, your friends or your neighbours, and they be- somehow become a Christian, 
it's not because you convinced them. It's because the Lord of the universe had already planned for such an event to occur. Um, I've been fishing a couple of times, and when it's a beautiful day and you're getting nibbles on your line, it can be a very enjoyable experience. Put up your hand if you've ever been fishing. Brent's been... All right, okay, there's a couple of you. Well, the one thing I've known about fishing is that there's a lot of things you can control, but there's one thing that you can't control. You can control what bait you use. You can control what time of the day you go. You can control where you fish. You can control what equipment you can use. But the one thing, the very one thing you can't control is whether you'll catch any fish. And I think this is the same with evangelism. You can't control how other people are going to respond to what you say. But strangely enough, that should be comforting because it's no longer contingent on your efforts. It's completely contingent on God and his efforts. And he has the power to change the hardest of hearts. Well, today we've, uh, we've been on a bit of a whirlwind as we've explored Paul's conversion and calling. But as we wrap up, I want us to reflect on some of the challenges that we've discovered from this story. Firstly, we've seen that Paul was placed in a system to persecute Christians. So we too, we need to be aware of the system that we play a part in. Secondly, just as Saul came to a point of surrender, we too need to give up on ourselves and find liberation in the gospel of grace. And lastly, just as God intervened in Saul's life to embolden him to preach the gospel, we too need to be willing to speak, knowing that God intervenes in our lives and those whom he's willing to change. Dare I say this might be a good opportunity to uh, pluck her up that courage and ask someone to come to the life course. I'm going to pray for us now. Please bow your heads as I pray. Father God, we do confess to you that um, we have people who have been placed in a system that we have continued to operate in, often showing false motives, often making it difficult for other people that operate within that system. Lord, help us to see the error in our ways. Help us to see how um, we need to buck the system. Help us to apologise to those if we have caused harm by repeating um, what has gone before us. Father, we give you great praise that um, you have bent our hearts to surrender to your will. If it was up to us, we would continue to live in our ignorance of you, but you in your grace has come down to us and you have shown us how we can live in light of your gospel. And we give you praise for that. And Father, we also ask that you would help us to be people who speak. Speak your gospel to our friends and neighbours. We find it the most unnatural thing to it, that we could ever do. But let us have comfort that you go before us, that you are changing hearts as we mission with you, and that you are um, intending to want to change people 
to come to yourself. And so help us as your instruments in that great mission where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord. This we pray in your name. Amen.